Hi, I'm Afton. And I'm Anna. And this is Grit, a podcast on the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network. Join us in reclaiming what it means to be girls raised in the South. Mm-hmm. So let's get gritty. <laughs> this is policy. So are you, are you baked into a, a couch of pillows? What's yeah, I'm sitting on the floor because, like, the, their closets are all, like, there are no doors on the closets. It's kind of weird. Anyway. Well, I'm in but. my laundry room with my pug, uh, Frankie, outside, nervous mm-hmm. nervous that I'm, he's not touching me. So, um, mm-hmm. all right. Well, what are your mm-hmm. – we've, we've got a great episode ahead. Uh, we, we interviewed Representative Gloria Johnson from Knoxville, uh, but Anna and I wanted to make sure that we – signed, sealed, and delivered an episode uh, to all of you this Thanksgiving week. Uh, so, Anna, what, what's going on in your life besides uh, myself? Oh, by the way, I left today, so uh, I won't be able to feed your cats tomorrow, but I guess you're back tomorrow morning, right? Yeah, tomorrow morning. Thank you so much for doing that. You're the best friend. Did you get your little gift? I did get my little gift. Uh, okay. I was a bit concerned because one of your cats had somehow – made his way underneath the guest bedroom uh the guest the guest bed I couldn't find him Mm. for about 10 minutes and I started freaking out so once again I it seems like I'm always in a state of panic at your house around your cat oh yeah they have like ripped the uh bottom part of the box spring and they climbed up in it um for comfort (laughs) thank you for that uh are you at home yeah, I'm I'm back home in Knoxville. Uh, my little brother's here, and we are about to head to the lake, uh, making sure we don't stop anywhere because COVID is is pretty bad right now. But it's been it's been a fun it's been a fun break. I haven't. It's it's nice to have a, almost a full week off uh, from from the election. So uh, I've just been reading. I bought the book uh, from I forget Talia Lavman. Uh, she's our age, and she wrote a book called uh, Culture Warlords. Have you heard of it? I have not. Okay, well, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm about to start it. I'm very excited. So it's about uh, let's see here. Let me give you the my journey into the dark web of white supremacy. Uh, and so she infiltrates some of these networks online. Uh, oh, and it's a 100 must read book of 2020. So I plan to, you know, my QAnon obsession has reached uh, new highs. So and especially with all of the conspiracies flying around Venezuela, can you believe that? Yeah, that was shocking. Well, this will be before the interview, so you will hear oh, yeah. about For those of you a shocking conspiracy yeah. theory. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, God, I, I just can't get over it. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I don't know. We're just, we're yeah, just, just posting. I'm grateful, grateful for the break. Um, haven't worked since Monday, uh, left Monday night, and have a little family time. Not the whole, whole crowd, but we're with um, Alex's sister and her family and um yeah we're just having a good time a little weird this year most of staying in the in the airbnb but it's been really fun lots of cooking and and i actually haven't worked for the first time in a long time good for you and how is it being an auntie oh amazing there's little littles here I love it so much. And my brother's about to have a baby. Or my brother's wife is about to have a baby in a few weeks. So uh, it's the year of the baby. But the best part about being an aunt is that you can drop them off at the end of the day or they go back to mom mm-hmm. and dad. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Don't quite have to go with them. <laughs> yeah. The well, I miss you. Um, and I guess we can do our – yeah, well, you, you said what you're – you're grateful for um and i'm grateful for yeah i think uh, people like gloria who have um you know governor lee our, our tennessee governor is a very beloved well was i guess i could use past tense is is now becoming less there we go um a beloved figure and gloria has been just the loudest opposition it's a really uncomfortable position that she occupies and someone has to do it because 
it's really sad when you have a Republican supermajority in the state legislature, all of your administrators and, gov and your governor is a Republican, and the reality of COVID that they are facing, they are, they are, in, they, and one, they are totally incompetent, but they have failed to truly grasp um, the reality of what's happening and, and uh, the ability to respond. So uh, I'm just grateful for, for people like Gloria who are outspoken and continue to fight for uh, teachers and students and our healthcare professionals that are, are dealing with this. So um, yeah, I guess I guess that's what we're grateful for. Total a, a gratitude, a, a gratitude package of of, uh, of I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> we're not in the closet yeah, I'll, and I haven't, I'll, even, I'll, I haven't had one glass of wine. <laughs> I'll echo that about Gloria. I think that is a tough position to be in, and you have to be um, you have to be strong. But I think it actually probably grinds their gears more that it's her because she is so knowledgeable and she is so likable, and so and she's tried and true and Tennessee through and through and a teacher and all of that. So she just has the stuff for it, and I think that that probably gets under their skin more <laughs> than someone else would. Right, right, yeah, or like me that you know trolled Andy, former representative Andy Holt. Ugh, these these guys. All right, well, uh, it's been a while since uh, I guess I've seen Gloria. I saw Anna last week, or and I was babysitting her cats uh, uh, before <laughs> she headed out. So, um, how's everyone's Thanksgiving been going? Well, it was weird. I I stayed home all by myself. <laughs> And what and what was the deal with your like? You're tweeting about your mother, or? Well, that was when we had committee. We had GovOps, and for two days, for several hours, um, I sat in a room with you know about twenty of my colleagues who didn't mask, and two of them coughed virtually the whole time, and so I just felt like. I didn't need to go and be around my mom and also uh, my brother-in-law's mom. They're both, um, I would I don't know how old Sharon is. I would imagine she's over 80. But, um, you know, for me, I just want to be positive. I'm not putting someone in harm's way. Yeah. And how did your mom take it? Well, you know, she she wasn't thrilled. She was like, Gloria, come on. And I said, Mom, you know, I understand it'll probably be safe and all of that. But um, like I said, for me, I just don't want to risk giving, you know, having something not knowing it and giving it to somebody else. The, the risk is not worth it. I can go and see my mom. Um, I usually go and see her on Sundays and take her her groceries and I can do that masked or we can sit, you know, social distance in the driveway, whatever. Um, I just don't, don't see the need of getting together with a few folks indoors, unmasked, eating dinner. So um, that was just a choice that I made because I can't live with the potential consequences, you know? Yeah, yeah. My mom's been so my grandmother lives in our living room uh in Knoxville and sold this out um the covid vaccine and you know as a family like what's gonna happen around that and um you know it's just it's pretty striking how families have responded to this in different ways in terms of how serious they're they're taking precautions, yeah, yeah uh, you know and a lot I know a lot of people who um you know, a little surprised that they also recognize the importance of uh, not doing those big dinners and, and uh, decided not to do that. And um, I, I appreciate it a lot. I, you know, I spent, since I was alone in my house on Thursday or yesterday, I spent a lot of time, you know, on social media looking and seeing what other people were doing. And I just came across so many posts of nurses and doctors just begging mm. folks to stay home because we just can't handle the load in our hospitals. Well, before we switch to COVID, Anna, did you want to say anything about Thanksgiving or? Um, no, I'll just, I guess I'll just echo that as far as we, we avoided um, the bigger family gatherings because those were still happening and, with some compromised people. So we 
have a little pod down here in an Airbnb, um, just sticking it out, but definitely still risk involved. And I know a lot of people are making hard decisions this week. um, Yeah. Well, um, before we hop into the exciting topic of COVID today, uh, and thanks for everyone joining on a holiday week. I know Cassie's eager to 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 start editing and producing, but um, before before we hop into COVID, I wanted to uh, talk about election results because uh, something I had a, a a brief interaction with a former state legislator on Facebook last week that I texted Gloria about because I just, it was so, it was just so outlandish and so um, emblematic of this extreme, I mean, I mean, well, let me, let me, so the legislator is Andy Holt, former legislator. He decided not to run for uh, this term and he posted, and the reason I saw it was because uh, I guess a few of my friends had either, you know, commented or, or um, clicked the the downward thumb button. Um, and this was his post on November 19th. Um, and so for those of you listening, uh, Representative Gloria Johnson and myself and Anna, we, we, we work in uh, public policy and advocacy at the state legislature. So uh, we kind of run in the same circles and uh, just <laughs> – one one anecdote before this one, the night that uh, Gloria brought, uh, we were staging our Enough is Enough uh, sit-in outside the governor's office, Gloria brought us sleeping bags and pillows. And Gloria, do you remember An- Andy Holt walking by? Do you remember this at all? Vaguely. <laughs> we were on the floor. You, I think you were on your phone sitting in a bench outside, and Andy Holt uh, must have come oh, I do. from drinking. Yeah, and he and he looked at us and he said something like, "You know, lady, sleeping on a sleeping in a sleeping bag on the on the legislative floor is a class D felony." <sighs> I just walked off. I mean, uh, anyway, so we we have a history of running together, which will explain his response to this. But this was his post on November 19th. To any of my friends who are celebrating the supposed win of Joe Biden, you are celebrating a rigged election. The election was rigged by software designed in Venezuela to accommodate the fraudulent (laughs) election of Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro. Let that sink in for a moment. Do you realize that when you celebrate Biden's win, in in quotations, then you are celebrating and opening the door to the atrocities currently being witnessed by the suffering citizens in Venezuela? You are siding with communist schemes and opting to defraud our republic. This is a seminal moment in American history. This is far beyond not liking President Trump. This is choosing communism over American exceptionalism. Choose carefully. You may get what you want. So initial reactions, Anna and, and Gloria. Well, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, I can't even start listing the ways that it is ridiculous. <laughs> Bless his heart. But this is, I mean, this is an extreme train of thought from, and I forget the, is it Sydney? Uh, I forget her last name, but the, the lawyer that has now, yeah, so that's right. And so, um, and what I think is comical is, you know, they weren't touting the, this this fraud um, or deception in 2016 when Trump won, right? And since then, Trump has been president for four years, and I am just, I am shocked that. Uh, Venezuela would be so active in our elections. I mean, I, you know, Anna, any any thoughts? Pretty much speechless. I, I feel like that's quite a uh, quite a train um, of logic that I don't quite follow. <laughs> For me, it's really funny in that the 2016, according to them, the 2016 election was awesome and perfect. <laughs> now, after four years of Trump being in charge, the elections are so terrible. Uh, excuse me? They might want to think about the claims that they're making. Um, you know, it's it's ludicrous. It's sad. It's Ultimately, it's really embarrassing to me. I know you guys probably saw where the first thing that when the Republican caucus met, the first thing they did was close their meetings. 
Yeah, I just saw and that. All I could think about was maybe I'd close the door too if my members were running around yakking about conspiracy theories all day long. It's really, it, it should be embarrassing to them. But as I said, I spent two days in Gavots with a lot of those folks, and I heard those conspiracy theories nonstop. I mean, the, just, the baseless, I mean, they're so baseless. And, you know, this, this ex, like, just this total denial of reality of what's happening. Um, and then his response to, so I commented with three laughing emojis because I, I didn't, I, it didn't even warrant a, a, a longer response. And he responded, former Representative Andy Holt responded with um, uh, something along the lines of like, Oh, have you been have you been arrested any time recently, Afton? And I'm just like, oh, God. Yeah, that was so funny to me. It was like, ooh, that's such a burn. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Yeah, he's, uh, you know, I, I wonder, I don't know if he's going to run for higher office, but I just thought that was, you know, and I, you know, I feel, and it's sad because it's like a lot of these, a lot of these legislators won their reelection, and I mean, they are just, they are knee-deep in these baseless conspiracy theories, uh, and these are the people in power. These are the people that, that run the Tennessee state legislature, so. Right. I mean, like, I was really, you know, I always am sort of thinking, do they really believe it, or are they just saying it because that's their agenda? And then being around a lot of them a, a week or two ago, and I found out that the way they talk about them you know, just sit around and talk about these conspiracy. I think they have to believe them. And to me, that is just so tragic in that, you know, the whole Dominion thing has been debunked by, by the right even. And and so it's amazing to me how far down this rabbit hole they were, will go. Um, you know, it, it is damaging our democratic norms and it's dangerous to this country. Anna, any thoughts about, I don't know if you've had any run-ins with, with former state representative Andy Holt, but any thoughts about the, this, the Venezuelan conspiracy theory and that we're heading into a, a communist country? Yeah, no, I haven't had any run-ins, thank goodness, I just see, you know, Twitter. But I am curious, like, where, um, not necessarily just this, this conspiracy theory, but what kind of um, sources are the legislature legislators using and like to get this information and like, is there any hope for debunking or getting them to move on from it? Or do they just hold on to what they want to believe? I mean, Gloria, do you think that they, at the beginning of the 2021 legislative session, they will, they will begin the, uh, uh, the session with a with a gavel in for uh, President Trump and the fraudulent election. I mean, I, I, like I just wonder if they're going to pass some type of resolution citing that Venezuela uh, caused Trump to lose. Well, you know, it won't surprise me. I have seen leadership GOP leadership legislators on Twitter and social media talking about just how we've got to protect our elections and all of these things. And it makes me very nervous about the type of voter suppression legislation they're going to bring. And I've even heard from certain members of their own party that they're, you know, they're so angry about this law that they're really going to try to own the libs um, with their legislation this, this year. And I hope that, that doesn't happen. I hope I hope that um, that calmer minds prevail, and that we focus on doing things that Tennesseans desperately need, and not silliness. Um, you know that that is a bunch of I don't know team politics. It seems like I want to get to work making sure that we contain the virus so that we can improve our economy and keep Tennesseans alive. I want to get back to work making sure people have health care and great schools. And I hope we don't spend time on this divisive, hateful rhetoric and, and, and continuing to demean our, our democratic norms.
Well, with that, I think that was an excellent segue uh, into the reality that we're facing instead of the, uh, <laughs> the the chaotic conspiracy around Venezuela, which which is COVID. Um, and so we wanted to, Anna and I wanted to have you on, on the show because one, you are obviously our, our favorite brittle, uh, but two is that uh, you know, rates are incredibly high, and as a, a, a sitting legislator, you have been incredibly outspoken for the entire duration of this pandemic, um, highlighting the governor's inadequate response, but also just you know during when he called the special session in August and they passed. Um, a bill that would limit companies from COVID liability, hurting workers. Um, and you've really just been incredibly loud and, and in a really, you know, I, I think one of the most important, and one of the most important epochs of, of you know, at least my political career. Um, and this, uh, recently a CNBC article came out uh, this week, and I, I guess you, you hadn't seen it, um, <laughs> which is big time. So you've been, uh, and the title is, Nearly 200 legislators have tested positive for coronavirus nationwide, and four have died as GOP flouts rules. And this was the um, the quote, and I know you're going to unpack it a little bit. But um, so our beloved East Tennessee state rep was featured in a CNBC article. We'll we'll put it in the we'll put the links in the uh, in the show notes. Uh, Tennessee Democratic State Representative Gloria Johnson tweeted Tuesday she would no longer have Thanksgiving dinner with her mother after attending a legislative meeting with Republican members who weren't wearing masks. We aren't having a big family Thanksgiving with mom due to COVID, but I was going to eat with her at a distance, Johnson wrote, adding that being around her legislative colleagues for the past two days will now mean she'll have to leave food on her steps. Yeah, um, and it it was really frustrating. I actually asked, uh, on the second day of meetings, I actually asked members to put on a mask. I bought masks and brought them. Um, asking the members to put on the mask. And I and I asked them on behalf, I said, you know, I don't want to come back the next time we, we are back in here together and there be empty seats. And and so, you know, for your health, for my health and my family's health, I'm asking that you all put on a mask. And I believe one legislator, one Republican legislator did put on a mask. Um, and I certainly appreciated that. But the bulk of the group, and the second day we were in a smaller room, and there were no, there was no spacing in between our seats. We had to sit right next to each other uh, because it was a smaller um, committee room. And we all know that the the longer the time you're in a an enclosed space inside, um, the more that you know the more the chance increases. And we had a couple of members that coughed much of the day, and and so it's just. I, I don't understand it. They talked about their freedom not to wear a mask, and um, it, it, it just doesn't make sense to me because it's so easy to put on a mask just to protect your neighbor. It, it, it's really a simple thing to do. And um, the fact that you can ask nicely and they just stare at you is really well, something. Well, I'm also, the, I'm sure you've seen the meme that shows uh, – highlights like if this is the most oppressed you've ever felt in your life then <laughs> i mean really right yeah <laughs> right. like and i know anna's yeah anna any thoughts on that yeah i i wonder like there are parallels i feel like with you know seat belts and um, other public safety and public health measures that we do take and i wonder um if this is just unique to the political moment we're in with like uh, partisanship and polarization um, and that the masks have been fully politicized or are y'all seeing this? Because um, um, I know there are, there are people on the left with more libertarian views um, and, you know, the personal freedom kind of rhetoric. So I wonder if y'all in your lives see this is like truly a political party divide. Is it an is there age um, differences? Because I feel like my older relatives, even if they're more conservative, they're they're taking it seriously. So um, is it just that these legislators are are um, so far in on the on the right, or um, are there other other reasons? Well, I. 
it's it's mostly that I think there are some on the left that that feel that that way as well. Um, not very many. I don't typically run into them. Um, but it's also this sort of, and it goes along with this um, current conservative and Trumpism, this kind of strongman thing, like I'm tough, I don't need a mask, you're afraid, which is interesting coming from the folks who have to have a gun everywhere they go. Um, I always, you know, there's just a lot of uh, juxtaposition that makes no sense where the, the hypocrisy when I hear them talk about my body, my choice, my health, I don't have to wear a mask. I'm thinking, yeah, except when it comes to my uterus. What's up with that? So it's bizarre to me. And these are a lot of these people are people who typically are not, you know, they're just not mean, hateful people. They typically care about others. But their partisanship is keeping them from being a productive and caring part of their communities. So, Gloria, um, I, I, so obviously I remember being on a call with you at, when the pandemic started in March as to the trajectory of the virus and that we would experience yeah. a second wave, which is happening right now. Um, and you know, at this point, like, you know, what is, what is Tennessee, what is our leadership not doing that they should be doing? And then I, I would love to hear, uh, you know, gen generalities, but then also uh, in terms of uh, our education system and, and protecting teachers. You know, we're, <laughs> we, there's so much, it, it, there's so much science now because we've been living in this for a while. And, and so, I don't listen to politicians about coronavirus. I listen to the public health experts and our medical professionals. And they've been right every single time. And you talk about being on that call in March or April, and we all we've been saying is first we have to contain the virus. When we contain the virus, we'll get our economy back on track, and we won't have our hospitals maxing out in their ICUs. And all of this has been true. Everything that we've been asking for, a mask mandate, uh, limiting some spaces, all of those things are working in some areas. But then you look at the countries who are doing best are the Asian countries where they're doing it mostly with masking, testing, and contact tracing and really strict um, quarantining when you are positive for the virus. Um, so, you know, to me, what you do is you take a look around the world, around the country. Who's being successful? How are they doing it? You know, we didn't do – there was this push from from uh, the president and from Governor Lee to get back in schools, and it's really been – it's been terrible here in Knoxville because you have schools that have to close down for five days or ten days. You've got teachers getting sick. We've had, what, four teachers or school staff die since we started back to school. Um, that didn't have to happen. It did not have to happen. We can be smart, and it's not shut down everything or open up everything. There's a happy medium in there with things that work. We know what works. We know masking makes a huge difference. Yeah, one of the, um, just to highlight the, I, I, I saw on Twitter that a teacher had passed away in Murfreesboro, but, but I think another one passed away. So I just wanted to honor them right now. Um, Martine Hope, who was a Mountain City educator in, in Johnson County. But uh, the story that I think was really heartbreaking uh, was the Murfreesboro special needs teacher, Susan Keener, who, who died in October. Um, she died after a nearly two-month battle with COVID-19. Uh, she was healthy, had no pre-existing conditions, and then suddenly she was on a ventilator uh, and a dialysis in the ICU for weeks. Uh, and I think the most sad piece of her story that uh, is heart-wrenching is she was, she was working three jobs. She was a special education teacher uh, at Walter Hill Elementary. She was a part-time receptionist at VisionWorks and a caretaker for her elderly mother and aunt. So not only a teacher who is um, – 
you know, work, trying to uh, work in a system that right now is not supporting, is not supporting safety, uh, but also had to work three jobs and uh, knowing that our governor called a special session to limit COVID liabilities for companies. And um, it's just, you know, it just seems like it's, it's all coming to a head. Yeah. I mean, this, what is happening is a result of policies and lack of policies. Um, you know, a lack of standing up to lead following the public health and medical professionals and having a mask mandate and, um, you know, closing large gatherings, things like that. We we knew this. And for people to act like, you know, this is encroaching on their right, it's, it's, this is about people's lives. And, you know, I saw somebody the other day said, this is a volunteer state. And they're right. This is a volunteer state. Wear that mask. Volunteer to be a good citizen and take care of your community and the people's health in your communities. I mean, I I just, when I got back from Nashville, I, my N95 mask came in. They were expensive, but I had to order my, you know, I'm, I've got to do my job. And um, if other folks in the legislature won't put on a mask to protect me and my family, then I'm going to have to do everything I can and get the kind of mask and protection so that I can try to protect myself and my family the best way I can. So, Anna, did you have any terms of, like, or questions in terms of protections in the classroom or, or teachers and students? I, know, I just wanted to mention that I know you had signed uh, you'd co-signed a letter about student evaluations, which I know was a big fight um, in the in education world of Tennessee. That uh, not forcing teachers to mandate, you know, to to give uh, mandated evaluations to students. Yeah, yeah. You know, I would like to, okay. Go ahead. I was just going to say I would like to hear more about some, you know, common sense policy solutions. This is obviously not ideal for to put teachers in danger and, and kids, um, you know, really thrive in the classroom. And it's just really complicated. Um, and I'm not super familiar with education policy. So I would love to hear more about some policy solutions, um, where you see potential for bipartisan agreement too. Well, it's really interesting because there's agreement in that we shouldn't hold the, the evaluations against either the teachers or the kids, more against the, not holding it against the kids, but also um, the teachers. But the reality is the, um, the time it takes to give those evaluations is really the bigger part of the problem because we're doing virtual or we're doing in-class or we're switching back and forth, you know, and we're not really sure um, the idea of giving a, quote, standardized test in a year that is absolutely the farthest away from standardized you could possibly be makes that test 100% invalid and not reliable. So the idea that we're giving a standardized test in a year that is not standardized and in a way that is not standardized is ludicrous. And we're going to spend millions on this test and it is a huge waste and taking the time out to figure out how we're going to do the test and online and in person and um, you know I've talked to a lot of parents who said can I exempt my child from this test and I said I absolutely would even if it's just keeping them home during the test or not doing it online I mean the reality is we need valuable time teaching our kids What's the African proverb about flowers don't grow when you measure them. They grow when you feed them, when you water them. You know, we need to be teaching kids, not measuring kids this year. Kids, we need to be catching them up. We don't need them nervous about a test score that isn't going to matter this year anyway. But the other side of that coin is what I want stopped are the teacher evaluations this year. Teacher evaluations are based on this very complicated rubric, and a teacher has to do these certain, certain things to have a decent score, and those things are think, pair, and share, where you put kids to work together in groups, and you put them. We can't even do much of what's on that rubric, and you can't just cut part of the rubric off. And again, that's 
that test and that evaluation is not going to be valid. And when you talk to principals, principals are at their wit's end because the, they're the, the um, supervisors are the ones who have to do this evaluating of teachers, evaluate every teacher two or three times in the year. And they, these, these principals, what they're saying to me is, I'm spending my day filling in classes where we don't have enough subs for the teachers who are out in quarantining. And they're just trying to keep their teachers' morale up. They're trying to fill in where they can. They're trying to make sure every, every, the school has what they need and everybody has what they need. Putting this burden of evaluating teachers is ludicrous, especially when some teachers are doing online, which they've never done before. They're learning it as they go. Sure, those principals and supervisors, they need to be in there checking in with the teachers. What do you need? How can I help? But not evaluating them and giving them a score, a standard score in a year. We're not doing standard teaching. Huge waste of time and resources. And the stress on the kids and the teacher in the most stressful year of their careers is ludicrous. I, I really, I, I have friends that are Knox County public school teachers, and I, you know, the mix of remote and in-person learning is so stressful, and it's a way above their pay grade. Um, and then shifting to, I wanted to talk a little bit about, I saw a really staggering um, and startling statistic from uh, Nashville, and then I also have uh, a, a, a snippet from, from Knoxville, but um, there was a, an article in WKRN, one of our local news stations, that uh, Metro National Public Schools are concerned that nearly 600 students still haven't logged in uh, for virtual learning. Um, and, and then uh, an article published uh, about a month ago in Knoxville, where Gloria and I are from, uh, Knox County Schools Su Superintendent Bob Thomas is urging parents to consider bringing their children back to school and returning to in-person classes. Over the summer, more than 18,000 students in Knox County opted to test out the virtual learning option. Uh, and I imagine that he is calling for in-person, a return to in-person classes because a small percentage of those 18 students, 18,000 students, you know, have, have not logged on. Any, any thoughts about that? Well, here's the thing. It's really, really difficult, the disparities in education and all that when you're online. There are a lot of things. It is time to think outside the box. It really, really is. And so for me, I, I just start thinking about other ideas. Okay, let's go to online four days a week. Those folks who aren't logging in, on that day that there's not, we're not on online in school, you're reaching out to those kids in your class who didn't come. Whether you're going to their house or you know reaching out to them on the phone or individually, um, and giving teachers time to do that where they're not trying to do that on top of their regular school day. There, we just have to get creative. This is an, you know something we've never had to deal with before. And teachers can be incredibly creative when they're giving that room. These ideas that the legislators are going to sit there and come up with ideas, or the state school board, a bunch of appointees, most of who aren't educators and don't even understand the inner workings of a school, and, and quite frankly, a lot of the people in the Department of Ed these days don't have much background in school. So we need teachers at the table, and we need to listen to their ideas about how to, you know, run these classrooms online or or however we need to do it. And we've got we've got to think creatively. We've got to think creatively. We've got to be creative. And we've got to open our minds to doing things a little bit differently. But we have to make sure that we're not leaving kids out and leaving kids behind. And, and that should be at the forefront of every conversation. How do we reach those kids that we aren't reaching? How do we bring them in? And a lot of these kids are, uh, I've read articles about the grandchildren of 
the grandparents are the main caregivers for these kids and the tech literacy, especially in a state like Tennessee, where a lot of our rural communities don't have broadband uh, is problematic. And so on my end, like, because I have one foot in, in federal policy, uh, you know, any type of federal overhaul when it comes to broadband or supporting rural municipalities to, to build out their networks and also, you know, tech literacy in terms of we, the pandemic is not going away anytime soon. You know, the soonest they are saying a vaccine will be available. Um, so I guess that's, that's an excellent segue into the, the rural piece that I wanted to highlight because uh, Anna and I, one, one, one aspect of our show grits is to make sure that we always talk about racial equity and um, the implications of obviously white supremacy and a lot of our policies and politics. Um, but I think the other one is to make sure that rurality is, is represented as uh, an important special interest demographic. Um, you know, Gloria, you are a state representative of a, a very populous uh, urban core, but you are fighting for rural communities with the policies that you are supporting and an advocate for, such as Medicaid expansion. Um, and an article that just came, that, that was just uh, published in the Daily Yonder, one of my favorite uh, publications from the Center for Rural Strategies, uh, nine out of 10 rural counties are in COVID-19 red zone territory. Um, the number of deaths from COVID-19 grew by 20% last week and set a record for the third week in a row. Uh, new infections in rural counties set a record for the ninth consecutive week. Uh, and in Tennessee, they have listed that we have 53 rural counties and 100% of those are in the red zone. Uh, and just your thoughts, you know, as we, it, it was because when the pandemic started, and Anna and I and, and, and you were trying to figure this out uh, in the beginning of the spring, COVID hadn't hit rural communities. Uh, so the impact was very low. And now with the second wave, we're, we're just seeing in a, this wave of, of, um, of, of problems. Yeah, it's, it, it's absolutely devastating. And like you say, um, I do have some involvement in, in particular in Morgan County uh, I've been working with Dr. Cronick at UT, who does the community schools. They're starting a community school up at Sunbright. And Sunbright is one of those communities, like you talked about, where there are a lot of grandparents and, and relatives raising children. Um, the reason Dr. Cronick chose, chose Sunbright is because 80% of those kids don't live with their parents, and 25% of their parents are dead. And so they're starting a community school up there to show that community schools literally, I mean, that's what they are. It doesn't matter if you're urban, suburban, or rural. Community schools um, meet the needs of your community. And so there, uh, there's a lot of work getting ready, getting, you know, mental health components in place and, and just a lot of outreach to this community and in talking to them they didn't have that many kids um, from their school at that point on um, at home learning but there there were some and and their concern were they were those kids that um, probably some of the parents were least likely or grandparents were least likely to be able to help them and and so um, I understand in some ways the need in those communities to get those kids back to school. But if if those communities are raising, raging out of control, like I saw some really high percentages of contagion in some of those communities, you know, you've got to do what's right. And you've also got to find a way to reach all of those kids. Um, it's, it's a huge problem. But it's, I think, you know, I, I was listening to what Europe is doing where, they are closing businesses, paying businesses to stay closed so that they can keep their schools open. They're making that sacrifice because they don't want to sacrifice in their education. Now, I'm not sure that they're having that much more success than we are at containing the virus because I think, you know, there's more to it than that. But um, there's no question that our rural counties need support they struggle with funding anyway. Uh, we have a governor that talks a lot about rural communities, but I'm not seeing any action. I'm not seeing support given to these communities that desperately need it. They are, they are desperate for more services, and they're just not getting them. 
Anna, have you found anything in your reading or uh, in terms of, of COVID uh, in rural communities as of late? I mean, nothing groundbreaking. I think the part I've been paying attention to most is what's going to happen next federally um, with another relief package. And, and there's a big emphasis on uh, local aid, but that does depend on the state um, infrastructure and proper uh, proper planning and proper distribution. So I think any kind of, uh, first of all, there's, you know, stalling on if the package will pass before the end of the year, likely not. And then who knows what McConnell will do next year with Biden. So, um, yeah, basically it, it relief is a long way away. So we need to start with, with local, it needs to come from local up rather than federal down, but, but, uh, the federal aid is desperately needed um, to continue the recovery. Well, my, what I think is going to be interesting, and Gloria, maybe you can speak to this, is if there, and hopefully the Democrats will pass an expansive and robust stimulus package, um, or, or as Anna said, aid. And as we're seeing because of, because of COVID um, and rates going up and, uh, that our municipality, our, our municipal governments are suffering. And um, even though they were, a lot of them are operating at losses, especially in, in, in rural counties in Tennessee already, that the pandemic has exacerbated that. And I wonder, um, are, are Venezuelan uh, conspiracy theorists in the legislature, if Biden is able to pass um, a, a really um, robust package that benefits rural municipalities. What do you think that looks like in Tennessee in terms of, you know, I know you're going to be, you know, allowed and, 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 and making sure that people know that the Democrats are trying to help folks at the federal level. But, um, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about is how can my rural groups support their chamber of commerces and, and their and their county mayors and applying for some of this funding and making sure that folks know in the community um, that uh, that they're getting support from the federal government. It, it's it's really, you know, it's a tough one because some of the people that you talked about, um, the, the naysayers and the folks across the aisle, they're, you know, they're going to be saying socialism and, and all of these kinds of things. But the reality is that is, you know, that's what we're here for. And we're here, the government is here, federal and state, to lift up everyone in the community. And that's what we've got to do in times like these. And I hope that they will put people before politics and do what's right for the working families in Tennessee, because families are hurting. Um, what was it somebody said the other day, you know, you you can't eat the stock market. And to, to act like that, that the stock market is the economy is so frustrating to those people who were working two and three jobs every day. And they're not, it doesn't affect them that the, wherever the stock market is, you know. And and we've got to start doing better at getting the message out about um, who are the folks that are fighting for those Tennessee hardworking families. And it's tough in rural areas because I think a lot of times people get really mad, like, oh, I can't believe they're voting against their own interests. And it's like, no, it's that it's the someone speaking to them about the interests that really don't affect their kitchen table, um, but they're more wedge issues. We've got to do better at getting in and making people understand that we're the ones that are fighting for them to have health care. We're the ones fighting for a great school for their kids. And we're the ones fighting for a higher wage so that they don't have to work two and three jobs and then they can be home with their family and have healthier families. And we have got to get that message out. And it's hard because we don't have a lot of vocal elected Dems in these areas to speak up. And it's better coming from inside the community and inside the county. You know, when, oh, Gloria Johnson, the liberal from Knoxville, can't, can't go into Fentress County and win hearts and minds. It's got to be people that work in their community, from their churches, from their schools, talking about how critical education is and how critical health care is 
and how, you know, these policies are out there and Democrats want to bring them, but we've got to support them. Well, and one of the problems that I, I, I have found is, you know, you, you may not represent Knoxville, but you, you are a Democrat, you are progressive in the state legislature fighting for working families, and yet the material benefits of Tennessee families haven't, hasn't improved because we aren't able to pass, we, you know, we don't have enough legislative power to pass bills that would improve the material conditions of Tennessee families. And, you know, maybe my, I guess my expectations should be lower um, in the state. You know, obviously I'm a relentless optimist, but as I was, I was, I was listening to you, uh, the fact that Bill Lee and uh, his administration refuses to release the TANF funds, um, and if Anna or, or Gloria want to talk a little bit about that, I think it's a really important story. Well, it, it, it just goes back again. I mean, if you look at the last 10 years where we've had Republican control in the state, we have seen a major shift of the tax burden go from the top to those in the middle and the bottom. They are shifting the tax burden to those who have less. And it's been very clear. They've been doing it for the last 10 years and it's getting it's an impossible burden to bear at this point and it is it is hurting our families and we need to be better at pointing out what has happened and demonstrating this when you look at teacher salaries teachers are making less today than they did 20 years ago when you take into account cost of living less today than 20 years ago in the hardest year by far, of anyone's career. We have got to point out what's happening. Anna, do you do you want to give a little brief, because I, I do think it's an important story right now um, in terms of what, what TANF and, and I know you're a policy wonk, but what TANF is and what's happening right now in Tennessee with, with the funds that haven't been released and who it impacts. Um, I'll try to be brief, but so TANF, um, what you're specifically referring to is like the TANF reserve. So um, it came out, I believe, about a year and a half ago that uh, they had accumulated um, over $700 million in TANF reserves. And so this is money that is supposed to be for low-income Tennesseans. Um, because of restrictions, it typically just goes to uh, single mothers with small kids. Um, there's a lot of restrictions on how the money um, can be used because of some changes that happened in the 90s. Um, it, it was it became a block grant, and um, yeah, states uh, can use the money in different ways. There's a really good podcast that does a deep dive into how different states use TANF funds. Um, I can't remember the name right now, but I'll I'll put it in the show notes. And um, anyway. Tennessee was just saving ours up and not distributing it, it to families, even though um, we have high rates of child poverty, and that's what it's supposed to be, um, what it's supposed to alleviate. And uh, they still have not. Um, they had some meetings, but the commissioner um, of DHS is, has left her job. I think her last day was last Friday. Um, and they didn't make any meaningful progress on distributing the money, and they continued to amass um, more reserves, different kinds of reserves, TANCARE reserves, TANF reserves, rainy day fund um, in the budget this last spring when they, after COVID hit, they revised the budget and took out some very small um, improvements that were going to be made, like a postpartum coverage extension for um, mothers from 60 days to one year on TANCARE and, and various things like that. Hopefully those go in next year, but um, they they continue to just keep stocking money away, um, which I guess gives us a great bond rating and um, kind of like what Gloria was saying about the stock market. Um, it, that is an indicator, you know, they want that they want that badge of uh, we have a great bond rating, we have a great uh, we're great uh, we're doing great fiscally, but are you really doing great if um, thousands of kids are living in poverty and don't have enough to eat? I don't know about that. So um, the TANF funds could really, could be unlocked and um, given to families in need. 
and 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 that's and that money has accumulated like i said over those last 10 years where we have been you know not lifting people up and it it is a perfect example they did they had a committee that met i think it was like every thursday or or maybe every other thursday to talk about that money but you know the reality is we don't need to sit and talk about it we need to get that to the families who desperately need it and um child care we know is a huge issue there are so many ways that we could use those funds and so many people that need it so desperately and then we see about these these cards they're trying to get to families and they get them to the schools and make the schools responsible for getting to the families is as if our department doesn't want to do their job anymore because when it came to sending out the the 10 care forms so that people could re-up they sent that that job to a company in California, and that's when we lost over a hundred thousand kids off our ten carols. I mean, they have little to no concern for families who desperately need help right now. The idea that in a triple A bond rating state, more than twenty percent percent of our children go to bed hungry is a travesty. To me, how can you brag about a AAA bond rating when over 20% of your kids go to bed hungry, when hundreds of thousands of Tennesseans don't have access to health care, when we have schools desperately in need, and you want to brag about our AAA bond rating, and our governor says, hey, come to Tennessee, we pay low wages. Wow. Well, um, on that note, we've been almost at it for an hour. Um, you know, what, what do, Gloria, if, um, you know, I guess looking ahead of the 2021 legislative session, besides um, a resolution to condemn the Venezuelan voting fraud <laughs> uh, uh, problem that we have in Tennessee, um, what can we look for uh, at, the, at the legislature next session? Well, you know, I think that some members are going to come out with some really outrageous stuff. We've already seen some of it. Um, and, and I think, you know, hopefully none of that stuff is going to get through. But what I want to see is really good policy that helps working families. We have to come together during this crisis of COVID and be serious about um, making this economy work for everybody. And you can't be serious if you're not talking about expanding Medicaid. You're not a serious legislator if that is not a discussion you're willing to have. Because in a pandemic, with hundreds of thousands without access to care, affordable care, you are not a serious person if you are not considering this. If you are not considering a huge investment to help make sure all of our kids aren't lost during this pandemic, you're not a serious legislator. That's just where we are. Well, I'm excited to see which rural legislators are thinking about the COVID vaccine and how they are thinking about the distribution, considering that the vaccine accessibility is going to be a problem um, with these ultra cold freezers that they are uh, requiring. So um, that's, I think, what I'll be looking for is to see which rural legislators on, on either side, I guess we only have one Democrat left, John Mark Wendell, um, but to see how they are proactively thinking about vaccine distribution um, and making sure that they are doing all they can for their communities at home in terms of, um, you know, preventing the spread of this uh, of this disease um, for a third wave. So, um, all right, Gloria, well, we're going to head into, our, is there, I guess it's, it's the week of Thanksgiving, uh, and we always do a Grits Gratitude Corner. Um, I did see that you had a gratitude post uh, about uh, a Girl Scout troop, and I thought that was a nice little, it was so cute. Uh, it was so cute. It was so cute. I got to go down and speak to them. They toured the city-county building and uh, spoke to them outside with a couple of city council women. And so it was great to do that. Um, you know, I have so much gratitude for our public, our health officials. 
for the Board of Health here in Knoxville, who's taken a lot of flack, but still kept their head down, their nose to the grindstone, and try to work to keep our community safe. The docs and nurses and all the hospital staff that are working their tails off, we need to honor them by wearing a mask. We need to honor them by following the guidelines. It's just critical that we do this as our numbers increase. And after this holiday, I think, you know, everybody expects to see another uh, increase even more from that. So um, be safe out there, folks. Well, Lori, if it was if it was a WWE match between you and Glenn Jacobs, I my money would always be on you. So just know that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it can happen. Right. Well, you never know. <laughs> Uh, well, we love you very much, and uh, we're, we're very grateful for you. You've always been our favorite griddle, um, and we're just grateful that you're in the state legislature fighting the good fight. Well, I'm grateful for you out there doing it. I appreciate you both, and thank you so much. Thank you to our griddles and our family at the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network. Be sure to check out the other podcasters in the network who are doing the Lord's work in the state of Tennessee. Find the good stuff at www.tmholler.com and be sure to subscribe and support The Holler while you're there. Follow The Holler to keep up with what's going on here in the state at The TN Holler on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And follow Grits at Grits Podcast. Keep it gritty! Bye!